Uh, so we're in Judges uh, again this week. Um, in a weird kind of way, I think Judges is the perfect book to get us ready for Easter. Uh, as we go through Judges, we see um, just how terrible uh, leaders are, uh, but how God used them anyway. And it makes us long for a true and a better uh, leader in Jesus Christ. And so uh, we will uh, find him uh, at the end of the sermon tonight, as per usual, but uh, also on Easter. Um, if you've not been with us, uh, Judges is uh, the seventh book in the Bible. Um, it is... Um, it's a hard, in some ways, a very hard book, but in some ways, a very, very relevant book. And the way that it functions is that there, there are 12 cycles, uh, and each cycle has a rescuer. And the way that these cycles work, they tell you about the, the spiritual life of God's people. And the spiritual life of God's people is really just like it is for us, uh, that they rebel against him. That's the first part of the cycle. And in response to their rebellion, uh, God disciplines them. I've been using the word retribution, but discipline is probably a better word because he wants to get them back. Retribution is you're just trying to exact punishment, but discipline is you're trying to win them over. So that's the second part of the cycle. God tries to win them back by sending a foreign oppressor on them to, to, that they might be under such pain that they would cry out to him in repentance. And the repentance isn't very good, but God will take whatever he can get out of them. They can just say, God, will you have mercy on us? God, help us. We're in pain. And God comes to their rescue, the fourth part. And so we're at the end of the last cycle uh, in the book of Judges uh, with this buffoon named Samson. Uh, we've been there three times. This will be the fourth and final uh, sermon on Judges. Uh, let me pray and um, we'll get started. Uh, Father in heaven, thank you uh, for my friends, uh, these brothers and these sisters. And uh, uh, Lord, thank you for their grace uh, toward me. Um, and toward each other. And Lord, I pray that you would increase our grace uh, one to the other and for our community. Lord, that we would uh, see ourselves as people in great, great need of you. Uh, Lord, convince us further of that tonight. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, the passage tonight, in a way, uh, unlike really the previous Samson sermons, is uh, really all about irony. Um, irony is a literary term, and uh, irony is an event that seems deliberately contrary to what you might expect. Irony is an event that seems deliberately contrary to one, what one might expect. Let me give you some examples. Uh, one is of a Vincent Van Gogh self-portrait. Um, all of you have seen this. You may have not known it as Vincent Van Gogh. I didn't until this week. But the self-portrait of Vincent Van Gogh, uh, where he's, uh, he's got a pipe in his mouth, and he's got uh, his ears cut off. But you don't see his ear because it's all bandaged up. And it's one of the most famous paintings of one of the most famous painters in history. And it's of him, not with finely manicured hair, uh, not with a toothy smile, uh, not with a, 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 a social media profile pick worthiness. It's not, that doesn't meet the standards at all because he's bandaged because his ears cut off. And what I found out, I mean, I, you know, you've seen this picture, I've seen this picture for most of my life and didn't know the story behind it. What I find out, the story behind it was, is that this was self-inflicted. Van Gogh cut his own ear off and he did it because that he had uh, ruined uh, one of his closest friendships, uh, that one of his closest friends had abandoned him because Van Gogh was a jerk. And he felt so bad about it that he cut his ear off. That's the story behind it. And it's famous? How's that the case? It's ironic. That's why. 
Um, here's some little light. These are a bit lighter, but I read about an account where a, um, a fire station um, caught fire and burned down outside of Knott's Berry Farm. Um, I read about another one where three men were chased by cops for an armed robbery, an armed robbery and two of them uh, ran into a police station and hid behind a vending machine. Um, I read about a traffic cop who got his license suspended because of his unpaid parking tickets. Um, or what about this? A pilot who has a fear of heights. Or a man who needs medical assistance and he's run over by an ambulance. Um, or a child who runs away from someone throwing a water balloon and falls in a pool. Um, all these are ironic. And God's ways are often ironic too. They don't make a lot of common sense. They are deliberately contrary to what we might expect. Take the Garden of Eden, for instance. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, his image bearers, they betray him. And you would expect God to smite Adam and Eve because they've disobeyed his command. But instead of smiting them, he clothes them in the midst of their shame. Ironic. He chooses Jacob instead of Esau, even though Jacob is the younger of the two brothers. Ironic. Samuel, uh, the prophet of God, Samuel sent by God to go choose uh, the next king of Israel. And he chooses the youngest of all of Jesse's sons, King David. Ironic. Um, Jesus, at his resurrection, uh, you would think that logically uh, he would make his first appearance to people who could convince all the other people that he actually did raise again from the dead. He would go to noteworthy figures, powerful figures, political figures, people of influence, but he doesn't. He goes to a group of women, and women weren't even valid witnesses in a court of law. Ironic. God chose Saul, the foremost persecutor of his church, to be the leader of his mission in the early church. Ironic. And perhaps the irony of ironies, the irony to which all other ironies suggest, is found at Golgotha, the hill on which Jesus died. See, the most powerful being in all the universe, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was killable when he took on flesh and he died there. The strongest being in all the world became the weakest. Isn't that shocking to you? Don't you find that to be ironic? It should be ironic. And so should your salvation. The one with whom you and I have sinned against is the one who pursues us when he should be the one who prosecutes us. It's the wonder of wonders. It's the irony of ironies. So what's all this have to do with Samson? It's got everything to do with Samson. See, Samson is rescued in Judges chapter 16 because the Spirit of the Lord, wait for it, leaves him. Not because the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, but because the Spirit of the Lord leaves him. And then you'll see that Israel begins to be rescued because their leader, Samson, not because he fought for him, but because he dies. I know it sounds paradoxical. I know it seems contrary to common sense, but that is always the way the Lord has worked. Um, let's read our passage for today. We're not going to read <laughs> all 31 verses, um, but I'm going to refer to the first 22 verses intermittently. Uh, so we're just going to read uh, from 23 on. Now the Lord... Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. 
And when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has given us our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. So right there, those first few verses right there, you get the scene, don't you? There's a worship service going on to their God, Dagon. And they're going to praise Dagon and they're going to ridicule Samson. So imagine, you know, there's a, uh, I went to, a, a, you know, since Billy Graham died a couple weeks ago, I went to a Franklin Graham, his son, went to his crusade when I was in college. This was about 01. And the place was packed with people. Uh, imagine uh, Rupp Arena packed with people worshiping Dagon and then center court, center of Rupp Arena, uh, they bring out, uh, they bring, the, the entertainment for the night is to make fun of their, of their great enemy, the one who just killed them again and again and again, Samson. That's the scene. That's the scene we have here. Let's pick it back up, 25, uh, actually 26. And Samson said, no, did I do that? No, 25. And when their hearts were merry, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof, there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. So now you see what's going on here. Now Samson's in the middle. There's two pillars there. It's holding up the whole building. He says, hey, let me rest on them. And there's, that, there's over 3,000 people there. We don't know how many, but there's 3,000 on the roof. We don't know how many are in the building. Verse 28. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, oh, Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. O oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down, took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. And he had judged Israel 20 years. The word of the Lord. All right, so the two ironies. The first one is the rescue of Samson. And the second one is the rescue of Israel. The rescue of Samson and the rescue of Israel both happen in ways you would not expect. The rescue of Samson. This is the part we not read, so I'm going to point you through verses 1 to 22 throughout. Um, go to the very beginning of chapter 16. Look at 16, verse 1. Uh, Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. All right? Uh, I don't have to explain that. That's self-explanatory there in verse 1. And we know what he's been up to, old Samson. Chapter 14, remember he was... Uh, Stand up on a hill, and he saw, looked down to the city of Timnah, and he said, uh, he said to his father, or said to his parents, uh, hey, go get me that woman down there, that Philistine. Well, that was against God's law. He wasn't supposed to be, not that he was, not the interracial marriage was wrong. That wasn't the point. The point was that this was an interfaith marriage, that that was against God's law, but he didn't care. He said, uh, he said in verse 4 of chapter 14, he said, for she is right in my eyes. So he was weak when it came to women. We saw it in chapter 14. We see it right here with chapter 16 with this prostitute. And the last one we saw that we'll see is 
with Delilah. Because after he leaves the prostitute's house, there in the first few verses, uh, he goes to uh, the, next, the town next door. And he finds another Philistine, Delilah. And Delilah is only one of these three women whose name. The first one is just referred to as his wife. The second one, or, or just the woman at Timnah. The second one is just called a prostitute. But this third one's got a name. And what the author is trying to get us to see is to draw our attention to her. That she's the most significant because she's the one who's named. And when the leaders, the Philistine, the, the, leaders, uh, uh, in, the Philistine leaders in Gaza, when they hear that Samson is in their town and that he is with Delilah, they come to Delilah and they strike a deal. They say, hey, you need to find out what the secret to his power is. If you can find out the secret of his powers, we're going to pay you off. We're going to give you a large sum of money. And she tries to get the secret out of him. And she begs him, tell me how you're so powerful. And he lies to her three times. But then ultimately, then she plays the ultimate trump card in verse 15. Look at verse 15. Look what she says. Verse 16, she says, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? Skip down a little bit. It says, she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him. His soul was vexed to death. And then he told her his heart. So she stays after him. He says, she says, what's the secret to your power? He lies. What's the secret to your power? He lies. What's the secret to your power? He lies. Last time she plays this trump card. She gets all weepy on him. And he tells her the secret. He says, you know, if, if you cut my hair, my hair's never been cut. If you cut my hair, I will lose my power. He told her his heart. He couldn't withstand the onslaught any longer. See, Delilah badly wanted the money that was offered to her, so she gives up her body willingly to Samson. Samson badly wanted the comfort, the adventure, and the pleasure of sex, so he gives her the secret to his strength. You see, they were, doing, they were using each other. They didn't love one another. Their sex was transactional. I'll give you this if you'll give me that. You see how this worked for Samson and Delilah. They had romance. Their attraction was involved, but there was no love, really. They might have been deluded into thinking there was love, but there wasn't. Because love is the giving of oneself for the good of someone else without the expectation of anything in return. So when sex is enjoyed between a man and a woman in the context of marriage, it's other-centered rather than self-centered. And it becomes one of God's greatest gifts. So when a husband and a wife, when they enter the bedroom and they start asking the question, how can I best serve and bring the most pleasure to my partner, then that's love. And that is not what's going on with Samson and Delilah. But this is the biblical ethic of sex that so badly needs to be recovered in our midst. Because what we do, both men and women, is that we've distorted sex. Typically, but not always. Men will diminish the priority of character in a woman in order to be with her just because she's attractive. It's distorted. It's a distortion. Typically, but not always, women will diminish the priority of character in order to be with a man who can deliver the lifestyle that they so desire to live. Distortion. But see, what happens is when Jesus is at the center of our lives, sex can be lifted out of exploitation it can be lifted out of perversity, and it can be something that further bonds and cements a husband and a wife in unity within their marriage. 
See, what Samson and Delilah, what they're demonstrating is essentially a narcissistic interplay within the sexes. Samson's problem just isn't compartmentalized into the area of sexuality. No, his problem is he's just selfish. Selfish in the bedroom and outside of it. He's excessively interested in himself. And if he were really honest with himself, he'd really say this. He'd say, I really love me some me. And that's why he's got these outbursts against the Philistines that are colored more by his personal vengeance than by securing victory for his people. That's why he's a sex addict. He's just a one-man band. He's a wrecking ball of force, and he's got no view towards the divine agenda. This is a man, from where I come from, badly needs to get himself saved. He needs God to bring him salvation. And you know how God does it. He does it by leaving Samson. Irony, remember? Look at the second half of verse 20. It says, but he did not know that the Lord had left him. See, Delilah wore Samson down to the point that he ended up telling her the secret to his power. And so when Samson does fall asleep, she gets someone to come in, cut his hair off, and then the Philistines pounce on him, and he's unable to ward them off because his strength is left, because the Lord left him. But then look at verse 21. The Philistines, they seize him, and they gouge out his eyes. And then they bring him to Gaza, and they throw him into prison with bronze shackles, and he grinds the mill in the prison. See what happens. Samson's hit rock bottom. He's blind. He's in prison. He's a slave. It sounds terrible. But that's what saves his life. Look at verse 28, what we read earlier. Beginning of verse 28, he begins his prayer with, O Lord, please remember me. See what happened to Samson? He got converted to reality. The reality is that Samson's not at the center of the universe. God is. And you can tell that Samson woke up to that reality because he's no longer demanding that God do things for him. He's not even assuming that he's going to be strong enough to pull off whatever he puts his mind to. So how did Samson get to that place? I think Samson got there in prison. See, day after day while he's grinding at the mill, he's got to think about the emptiness of his sexual exploits. He's got to think of the arrogance that's associated with his acts of violence. He's a broken man. And he's finally woke up to his need for the Lord. See, if God would not have left Samson, he would have continued to be strong and he would have never ended up in prison. So in the end, God's absence is what saved his life. This has a lot to do for me and you. Because God will do whatever it takes to wake you up to your rebellion. You know, being a pastor, and I, I hope just the culture of our church is such that we're always hearing one another's stories. We're always hearing people talk about what God's doing in their life. And oftentimes, as you listen to these stories, not just in our church, but I think with any Christian, you'll find stories of tragedy, much like Samson. Most of us, we have to hit rock bottom. We've got to see how small we are, and we've got to see how big God's love is for us, even in our smallness.
So have you been running from God? The good news is, is that if you're his, you can keep running from God and you'll find out that you can't ever outrun your father who loves you. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible, Psalm 119, 71. And it says, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Now, this was written after Samson died, but I, I can just see Samson saying, praying that prayer. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes when he was in prison. See, friends, God will catch you. He will afflict you. It will hurt. But he does it so that you might return to him. So you're sitting here afflicted tonight. Has your life been ruined? Well, it's easy to blame yourself for that. Samson could have done that. He could have said, it's my own fault that I'm blind, I'm in prison, I'm enslaved. He could have blamed the Philistines. He could have said, those wicked, those wicked Gentiles, they don't know anything about God anyways. But if you read this story carefully, you'll see that God has been orchestrating his life and God orchestrates yours too. Ultimately, God's responsible that Samson was in prison. And God wasn't doing it to punish Samson, but to redeem him. He wants to redeem you too. Will you turn to him tonight? Will you see that your pain might just be what brings you your rescue? That's the rescue of Samson. And it's the rescue of Israel. Samson gets rescued in his affliction. Meanwhile, Israel is rescued because their leader dies. We should be asking the question, what? <laughs> How does Israel get any redemption out of this deal? Usually groups of people are rescued because their leader is thriving, not because their leader dies. But way back in 13 verse 5, we see that Samson is promised to begin the salvation of God's people. And he does just that in his death. Samson's brought up from the prison to entertain those Philistines in this temple to their god, Dagon. And these people are thinking, bring out this pathetic slave who's been torturing us so we can jeer him. And he comes out and he asks this boy who's with him, he said, hey, because he's blind. Remember, he's had his eyes spooned out. And he says, hey, will you put my hands on these pillars? And the boy does so. And he puts his hands on there. He prays that prayer. Let's read it again, verse 28. He says, O Lord God, please remember me and strengthen me only this once. O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Let me die with the Philistines. So he bows his head. He pushes the pillars. Then in verse 30, you see this, this, this kind of tragic epitaph that says, So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. The story is dramatic. You had the double visitation of an angel in verse 13. You've got, you've got him doing miraculous um, acts of strength in, verse, in chapters 14 and 15 and even in 16. And now in his death, he takes out his enemies. It's dramatic. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? <clears throat> There's a pattern here. An angel of the Lord announces both Samson and Jesus' birth. It was a miracle that both Jesus' mother and Samson's mother became pregnant. 
Both Samson and Jesus were betrayed by someone who acted as their friend. Judas was Jesus and Delilah was Samson. Both were handed to Gentile oppressors, Jesus to the Romans and Samson to the Philistines. Both were tortured and chained and put on public display to be mocked. Both were act to perform as they were being mocked at their death. Both died with outstretched arms, Jesus on the cross and Samson's hands on the pillars. Both appeared completely struck down by their enemies, yet both in their death crushed their enemies. Jesus crushed Satan. Samson crushed the Philistines. Both defeated their enemy alone, utterly alone. Both acted as a representative for their people. Jesus for the church and Samson for Israel. Now I know that Jesus sounds a lot like Samson from all that, but Samson is really just the shadow of the reality of Jesus. He's very, very different from Jesus too, isn't he? See, Samson had this unprecedented calling that we read about in chapter 13. He's a Nazarite, which means he's set aside and he's holy. And he's going to have this monumental task in front of him. But then as you read the account, you see that he wastes his life. And so when the author writes that he killed more in his death than he did in his life, it's a tragic statement. It's not a compliment. But Jesus was just the opposite, wasn't he? Jesus was given a task at his birth, and he accomplished it to a T. Christ's attitude was to empty himself of all self-interest, of all self-determination, of all self-glorification, while Samson just kept on blowing up his ego. Samson would rather run around with Delilah than protect the gift God gave him. Samson was foolish, fallen, faithless, fragile, So when God hears Samson's prayer in the midst of his desperation and in the midst of his failure there in verse 28, it's clear that it's only God's grace that makes something positive come from his life. See, Jesus is the true and better Samson. Samson is no hero for worth our emulation. He's no model. Because if you just look at verse 28, you see it. If you look at it carefully, his prayer in the original language has 18 words. Five of those 18 words are, the, are a first person pronoun. Again, he still loves him some Samson. He's still self-centered. His ego is still alive and well. And he's still more concerned about his personal vengeance than about God's agenda. There's no corporate sense of saving God's people with Samson. He's just preoccupied with himself. Look at it. Remember me. Strengthen me. Let me get revenge for my two eyes and let me die. He doesn't seem all that concerned about the fact that he's in a pagan worship service with Dagon and God's glory is being defamed. Yet God answers his prayer. Friends, that's really good news for me and you today. God's not waiting for you to get your prayers just right. He's not even waiting for you to get your heart just right. He can work with you even if you're a person of little maturity, which is all of us. So you turn to Jesus tonight. Will you pray that he'll deliver you from your pride? Will you pray that he'll deliver you from your lack of concern for his people? Will you pray that he'll deliver you from not even being aware that his name is being defamed in your midst? 
Because, friends, he's never, ever rejected someone who's cried out to him. Let's pray. Lord, we do. We cry out to you. Uh, we see, uh, really, that all of us in different ways, but all of us, nonetheless, we love us some us. Uh, we see that we really don't have um, all that much concern for the people around us. And if we do, it's really just a, a veil for our own pride. And Lord, we hate to admit that we really do think that the universe revolves around us and doesn't around you. That we're, not, we're not even aware of the ways in which uh, your reputation um, is being slaughtered among us. So, uh, Lord, would you... Uh, turn our eyes upon you. And Lord, would you convince us that you really are merciful. That if you heard Samson's prayer, you'll hear ours. So do so tonight. In Christ's name, amen.